Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. If you would, locate in, in your Bible uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, or the verses will be on the screen. I'm sorry, all of you Bible app fans, I forgot to put it in the Bible app, so it'll be on the screens. Um, but we are continuing our series that we've called Milk and Honey, which is the substance and the sweetness of the story of the Bible. And we've been looking at it in kind of three parts as the story of Scripture moves through all 66 books, unified by really one continuous story that we've broken into three parts, creation and commission, rebellion and redemption, new creation and commission. And the kind of funny thing is that the first half, Creation, Commission, Rebellion, all happen within the first three chapters of the Bible. By Genesis chapter 3, the world has been created, humanity has been commissioned by God, and humanity rebelled against God. And so from the end of Genesis chapter 3, all throughout the rest of the scripture, is the story of God redeeming his people and also recreating the earth and commissioning humanity once again with the same commission. And so as we've been going through the story, we've been moving at a pretty rapid pace. Right now we are in Exodus and looking at the story of God's people, but really we've been looking at God's plan for redemption through individuals. The way that God plans to redeem all of humanity is through individuals. We've seen that with the life of Abraham. We've seen that now we've been following Moses. But before Moses, there was Abraham and his son Isaac. He had a child named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who are to become the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of Jacob's sons named Joseph, he was... Hated by his older brothers, if anyone's seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anyone? Yeah, theater people, shout out. And then uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Uh, ultimately, he works his way up and becomes the assistant to the Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Now, there's a great famine in all of the land in that area, but Egypt has a storehouse of food. So Joseph's brothers come to Egypt, and they ask for some of Egypt's food, and he gives it to them. It's kind of this crazy story where now the family of Joseph that sold him into slavery is now living in the palace in Egypt, and the family grows and grows and grows until there's millions of them. The Pharaoh is now threatened by the family of Jacob, or also known as the Israelites, and now the Israelites are huge. Pharaoh's threatened, so he puts them in slavery. Now, for over 400 years, the people of God, the Israelites, are in slavery in Egypt until God appoints a man named Moses, who we looked at a couple weeks ago. And Moses is the redeemer of Israel. And he doesn't do it by force, but he does it by reliance on God. And we see that. Nate talked about him being trained in, in not martial arts or like jujitsu or like the military, but he was trained to rely on God. And he delivers them out of Egypt. Last week, we looked at them at the base of Mount Sinai as God reveals the law 
to the people. And so now we're going to pick up at Sinai. Before we get to Deuteronomy chapter 8, I want to read in Exodus chapter 34. This is on top of Mount Sinai. Moses is meeting with God. And really the, the idea that is happening, that is the central theme of God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, creating them to be his nation, as we talked about last week, a nation filled with priests, a holy nation. And God is revealing his ways to the people of Israel through the law. And on top of Mount Sinai, what it's all about is God revealing himself more to the people. Moses is having a conversation with God and he asks to see God's glory. It's this kind of interesting thing. And God responds, and he says, You cannot see my glory in fullness, but I will pass by. And then in Exodus 34 and verse 6, it says this. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, Lord, the compassion and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents and to the third and fourth generation. Moses then bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I had found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin. And take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. I'm going to repeat that because this is really what I, what I want us to look at. The people living among you will see how awesome the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Let's pray and then we'll kind of talk about the rest of the story. Jesus, I, I ask that your, your spirit is poured out upon this place. As the song that we sang, a a cry for for more of your spirit to rest on us, Lord, that's all we want. That's all we ask for. And Lord, we believe that you are a God who desires to dwell among your people. Lord, we don't need to convince you to, to come and pour your spirit out upon us, Lord. It's something you desire to do. And so, Jesus, we, we come to you tonight in a posture to receive from you. Help us to lay distraction aside, and to lean into your voice. I ask that even though I'm speaking into a microphone, Lord, would your voice be the loudest in this room? Speak to the depths of our hearts and into our soul. Lord, would you, would you meet with us here in a fresh and a new way? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, the people of Israel have been taken out of bondage in Egypt They're delivered out and they're given a promise that they will be delivered into the land flowing with milk and honey, into the promised land. But before the promised land, does anyone know where they go? 
Anyone know? Come on. The wilderness. Absolutely correct. They go into the wilderness. Now, the story that happens in Exodus 34 is while they're in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, God is directing the people of Israel, literally directing them from Egypt to Israel. But they take this pit stop at the base of Mount Sinai and they camp out there for uh, around a year. And as they're camped around the, the mountain, God, like I said before, is revealing himself further to his people. But does anyone know how long the Israelites are in the wilderness? 40 years. Does anyone know how long it takes to walk from Egypt to Israel? Not 40 years, but instead, five days and 10 hours, according to Google Maps. It's about a six-hour drive. That's not bad. Yeah, five days, 10 hours. Easy. It's better than 40 years. It's about a six-hour drive. It's about a three-hour flight. But apparently, as U.S. citizens, you're not allowed to fly from Egypt to Israel. My parents found out about that the hard way. They're in the airport in Egypt, going to fly, and they said, you can't fly. And they're like, but we bought tickets. And they're like, too bad. So they had to get an Uber and drive from Egypt to Israel. And the Uber driver's name was Moses. Isn't that crazy? I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, it's a good joke. I had you guys there for a second. So it's a five-day and 10-hour journey that takes 40 years. Uh, Julianne and I, my wife, we have a young boy named Sid. He's two and a half years old. Yeah. Just, just pray he sleeps tonight for the love of God. And when, when, she, was, was preg when, when she was pregnant with Sid, we, uh, we have all these meetings, you know, as a family. Right? We sit down and we talk about stuff. One of the meetings as we're prepping for Sid was uh, like, let's figure out how we're going to get uh, to the airport, I almost said, to the hospital. Let's figure out how we're going to get to the hospital. She's like, I'm going to be in pain. I, I'm not going to be able to, to, to drive. So Shane, you're going to have to drive. And you're horrible with directions. I'm like, that's correct. And she, so she asked me, she said, how would you get to the hospital. Now, I live on 43rd Avenue and 16th Street, okay? I think it's that way. <laughs> 14th, yeah, it's 14th Street, but it's basically 16th Street. 43rd Avenue and 16th Street. She said, how would, you get to the, how would you get to the hospital? So I said, well, I would drive down 16th Street, and then I would go down to 10th Avenue here, and I would drive down 10th Avenue, and then I'd go past 60, and I'd go past 60 again, and then I'd get to US 1, and then I'd turn left on US 1, and I'd go around the bend, and that it would lead me straight to the hospital. She's like, yeah, if you were a moron, you'd drive that way. <laughs> She's like, what you're going to do is you're just going to go out on 43rd. 43rd just goes straight to aviation. Aviation basically dumps you right onto US 1 where the hospital is. I'm like... Okay, whatever. So we wake up in the middle of the night. Julianne is having all these contractions. She's in a ton of pain, and she's like, it's go time. Do you remember how to get there? I'm like, yes, 16th to 10th. She's like, no, 
43rd to aviation to US-1. I'm like, got it. I can do this. So we get in the car, drive down 43rd. We get to 60. And at the time, if you guys remember, 43rd is closed due to construction. So we're like, ah, oh, great. And so then we like make, uh, we turn right onto 60. And so then we drive down. Now I'm going to lose the names. We turn someplace else. Okay. Maybe 27th. Is, okay. Uh, yeah. And then we go, and now we're going to go over the railroad tracks. And guess what? There is a train stopped on the railroad tracks. So then we, we pull away from the railroad tracks, and then we go down. We're all of a sudden on 14th Avenue. We're like downtown. We're going past Pocahontas Park, and we're going to turn right onto those. But guess what? The train is there to dead stop. So we back up. We drive down 14th Avenue all the way to 16th Street. We drive down 16th, and what do you know? We get to 10th Avenue. We drive, we go over the railroad tracks on 16th, turn down 10th, go 60, 60, left on US-1, straight to the hospital, just as I planned. <laughs> the reason why I bring that up is because sometimes the long way is the best way. Sometimes the long way is the best way. If we would have just gone my way, it probably would have saved us 20 minutes. Not going to lie. Sometimes the long way is the best way. Now, God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, and already God's plan is to take the long way from Egypt to Israel. One theologian by the name of N.T. Wright, he says that God's act of deliverance started when he, when he brought Egypt out, or Israel out of Egypt, but then it continued as God brought Egypt out of Israel. Now, God's intent for the year or so journey from Egypt to Israel was to get the, the way of Egypt out of Israel and replace it with the way of God. Now, the Israelites, they would have been slaves in Egypt. They would have been beaten and oppressed they would have been familiar with the sound of whips and the smell of blood. They would have been familiar with death and pain and labor. And so they were these people who have been oppressed for generation and generation and generation. And in this year and a half or so, as they're in the wilderness, God's design was to take that, that way of living out of them and now give them the freedom that comes as they follow his way. So removing the way of Egypt and replacing it with the way of God. But we see that after the year or so that they're in the wilderness initially, they get to the land of Canaan or the promised land. They're on the outskirts of the promised land. This is in Numbers chapter 13. God tells them to go into the promised land, to overtake it, and to go live in the promised land. Now, the Israelites, they send 12 spies into the promised land to look at the people in the city and to, to kind of see what's going on, to see the land. And when they come back, 10 of the 12 spies, they, they say, we can't go in there. There's giants in the land. There's an army in the land. There's, there's fortified cities. There's no way that we can overcome and take them. Now, two of the spies, uh, I can't remember their names, so it doesn't matter. Caleb, yeah, and Joshua. 
they come out and they say, no, we can do this. God will fight for us. But 10 of the spies refuse to go into the promised land. And this we see, it, it really it breaks the heart of God. Because it, already in the life of the Israelites, God has fought for them and delivered them. He's provided for them. He's giving, given them the law, his ways. He's, he's been with them. And really the, the agreement that God made with Israel is recorded in Exodus 6. He says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out of the burden of the Egyptians. Really, God makes this agreement with the Israelites. He says, I'm going to fight for you, I'm going to protect you, and I will be your God, but you need to commit to me to be my people and for me to be your God. It's this relationship, this covenant that God makes with his people. And part of that covenant is relying on God, trusting on God, in God and allowing him to deliver and fight for them. And when they get to the promised land, really as the 12 spies go in and come out, what they're saying is that we are unwilling to fight or to allow God to fight for us because we, we don't think we can fight for ourselves. And this is that Egyptian kind of way uh, rearing its head. That they think that they need to work, they need to strive, they need to achieve, they need to fight their own battles. And so God, what he does is he takes them back into the wilderness. We see it in Numbers chapter 14, in the wilderness, your bodies will fall, God says. Every one of you, 20 years or more, uh, who was counted in the census and who grumbled against me, not one of you will enter into the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So God says, all of you people who, who didn't trust in me and didn't rely on me and, and weren't willing to go into the promised land, we're going to go back into the wilderness until you people die and then the rest of Israel is going to go in. So they wander for 40 years. And they're wandering as they're literally killing time, waiting for these people to die. And in the wilderness, we see that God continues to reveal himself to the Israelites. Now, the next part of my message is going to move faster. That was a very long introduction. But we see at the end of the 40 years that Moses addresses the people of God, the Israelites, and he kind of recaps their 40 years in the wilderness. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. See, we see the point of the wilderness was to rely and trust on God. So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years 
You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, of springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, and a land of weed and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive oil and honey, and a land which you will eat bread with, uh, without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, and a land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper. I'm going to keep going. Are you guys following me? Okay, when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But then he says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I commanded to you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and when you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to, uh, to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of your hand have gained me this wealth, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Remember the Lord your God, and remember all the things that God has done for them in the wilderness. I kind of want to talk about the, these 40 years and really what Moses is saying and move pretty quickly for the rest of the time and breaking up the 40 years, 40, 40 years in the wilderness into three parts. The three parts that, that God reveals about himself in the wilderness are this. First, opposition and protection, emptiness and supply, and uh, wandering and direction. Opposition and protection, emptiness and supply, wandering and direction. These are really the, the, what he is taking. The Egyptian way is being removed and the way of God is being given. And we see this demonstrated as kind of a rhythm in the 40 years as they're in the wilderness. That when the Israelites are opposed... God protects them. When the Israelites feel empty, God supplies for them. And the, when the Israelites are wandering and are lost, God provides them direction. First, let's look at opposition and protect, protection. We see this most clearly as they are delivered out of the slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. But we also see this over and over again illustrated with uh, the rod of God. The rod of God is kind of an interesting character that we read through in the story of the Exodus. The rod of God, really what it represents is the power of God in the hands of his servants. 
the power of God in the hands of his servants. And when that happens, we see God's power on display in relationship with humanity. We see this as the serpent turns or the, the rod turns into a serpent, displaying God's power over Pharaoh's magicians. Uh, we see it raised to deliver Israel from the Red Sea. We see the, uh, the rod of God strikes a rock and water flows from it. And then we also see the deliverance uh, that the rod provides uh, against the Amalekites. It's something that's repeated over and over again because God is a God that fights for his people. There's a phrase that's repeated all throughout the story of the Exodus that that God has delivered Israel by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. His mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And really this idea is the power of God, his mighty hand, but then his arm is outstretched that his power is made available to his people. His power is fighting for on behalf of of God's people. We see this kind of interesting paradox uh, in the life of Jesus when he prays. When he prays, Our Father, and he says, In heaven. We see the Apostle Paul write about this kind of same idea when he says that God is, is willing and God is able. It's this kind of paradox that God is other and God is holy and God is able and God is powerful, yet. He has a a mighty hand that he does not keep close to himself. His arm is outstretched and he fights on behalf of his people. Now for the Israelites, they were fighting literal battles against armies. They were fighting literal hunger that that the protection of God provides for. They were were, uh, facing literal seas and storms that God protects the people of Israel. But for us, the same thing is true. That God has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In your situation, God wants to fight for you and protect you from whatever your opposition is. If it's opposition in friendships or in your family or conflict at home or in school, or if it's a battle between you and temptation or depression and anxiety, whatever it is, God has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God is, is able to help And he's also willing to be down in the weeds with you and protecting you in every battle. We also see uh, God's protection actually against uh, the Israelites themselves. The Israelites are complainers. And the funny word that the scriptures use, murmuring, they, they complain a lot. And God actually protects Israel from itself and kind of weeds out internal conflicts. Pretty interesting. Part number two. Is this making sense? I'm going to take a drink of water. Part number two, emptiness and supply. In Exodus chapter 15, there's a verse where God, this is me summarizing, but what he says is, if you obey my commandments, I will provide for you and I will protect you. This is illustrated over and over again. In fact, every single day as God provides manna from heaven. What manna is, is bread that would rain down from heaven every morning that was sweet like a donut, but had all the nutritional value that would uh, provide for the Israelites in the wilderness for a whole day. It's like this magic food that was delicious and it was actually good for you. 
It's a rare combination. And the, the manna would rain down, but God made kind of a rule about it. Is that every morning you would go out and you would pick your supply for the day. You would not hold any of it for the next day. Some of the Israelites tried and the next day the manna from yesterday was filmed with wor worms and maggots and it was all disgusting and unedible. And what God is saying is that you need to rely on me to satisfy you and to satisfy your needs every single day day. That God's desire is to meet with his people to, to supply their needs every day. Every morning the Israelites would wake up and there would be bread for today that they would eat. And God's heart is the same now as it was then. Every morning the, the psalmist writes that the mercies of God are made new every single morning. Every morning God has something for you in that day. And sometimes we, we really like to hold on to what God has done in our life, which I think is great. In the text that we read, we said, it said, remember, remember, remember. But also we are to look for God's provision and God's supply every single day. Manna from heaven and water from a rock, the, the, they were thirsty and God supplies their thirst. But it's not just that God gave them food and drink, but the fact that God listened to their cries and their needs. He heard their complaints. God is a God who desires to provide for his people. Food and water are kind of interesting because they're super, super important, but they're also kind of like not important. You know what I mean? Like you obviously need food, but it's not like this big deal. Just like they, they could probably figure food out, you know? But God is, is there and God provides. God, God is there in, in the most mundane and the most kind of, it's significant obviously, but there's some level of insignificance about food. And God is there with his people. And God is there with us. He wants to supply our emptiness. Part number three, wandering and direction. We see in Exodus chapter 13 and Exodus chapter 14 that the presence of God is, is made known to the people in kind of two ways. In the day, God would guide them as a cloud that would literally direct them through the wilderness as like a GPS taking them from one place to another. And also at night... He was a pillar of fire doing the same thing. I think it's important to note that, that God's desire is really to be with his people. God's not a distant God that only makes commands and allows his people to figure out how to accomplish what he asks for. But he is a present God that is with his people, leading his people, providing for his people, and protecting his people. I think it's important to know that, that God has plans and purposes for your life. Like the Israelites, the Israelites had the promised land in their future, and, and God has a promised land, so to speak, a life that he has planned, that he has foreordained for you to live in and for you to walk in, but God's desire is not to just tell you that and for leaving you to figure it out on your own. God is a God that shows up as a pillar of, of cloud and a pillar of fire. 
He's with his people. He leads his people. He directs his people. God wants to do the same to you. God wants to lead you. God wants to direct you. God wants to be with you. God wants to provide for you. God wants to protect you. We also see that God directs not only physically, but also kind of spiritually. God reveals his law, which is the ways of God, to the Israelites in the wilderness. The ways of God are to replace the way of the Egyptians, to make them into a holy nation, to turn them into really what God has designed them to be. With the law, the standards of God are revealed and more of who God is, how he is to be worshipped, and how he's to be approached. The, the law is super important because it shows that God is a person and God has standards. God is a person and God has standards. Has anyone ever had a, a, a conversation with their parents and you're like, you're having fun, everything's going really well, you know, you're like, oh, I'm actually getting along with my parents for once. And then you say something and they're like, I'm not like your, one of your friends, you can't talk to me like that. I'm like, oh, I thought we were like really onto something here. Like I thought we were like, I don't know. I thought we were, we were friends. I was like, don't, don't talk to me like that. Uh, there, there's a funny scene in the office uh, where I think Andy like, goes up to Daryl, and he's like, he's like, hey, idiot. And then Daryl just goes, start over. <laughs> so good. It's classic. The law of God is God revealing himself to his people and revealing his standards to his people. God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. God is a perfect God. However, for whatever reason, he calls imperfect, unholy, and not righteous people to be his people. And in so doing, God does not lessen his holiness, but what he does is he calls up his imperfect people into holiness. God directs the people out of their unrighteousness into righteousness. God directs them out of their sin and into holiness. God directs them out of their temptation and their bondage into freedom and into life. That's what God does. And the standards of God, the, the rules that God implements, the commandments of God, they are not a, a burden onto us that is like chains that keep us captive, but instead the ways of God actually provide for us freedom. And we see that the Israelites, it's super interesting, over and over again in the wilderness, their desire is to go back into Egypt. They said there was food, there was better food in Egypt. Uh, I, there was a better place to sleep in Egypt. Life was, was easier. And they actually desired to go back into slavery because they were confusing freedom with slavery and slavery with freedom. They thought that, that doing whatever they wanted and, and settling for what they could do on their own was actually freedom when God is revealing, no, in my ways, in my commandment, in my life, you will find true freedom. It's important for us to understand the, the wilderness story because it's kind of where we find ourselves in life. 
We, if we've placed faith in Jesus, we have been set free from sin and bondage, from captivity to our own desires and our own ways, and we've been set free into life and freedom with God. But we're not quite in the promised land yet. We're not, we're not where ultimately God is bringing us. For the rest of our life, we're like the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness. And as we wander, as our desire is to go back into the temptation and the sin and the bondage that God has actually freed us from, thinking that in giving in to our own desires, we will find happiness and joy. But actually, the scriptures tell us that as we crucify our desires, we begin to live freely in the spirit of God. And as we're wandering in the wilderness, suffering from wanting to go back into slavery, as we are feeling empty, as, as the things of God or, or maybe our friends or the things of life are not satisfying us as we hoped they would, or maybe we are, we are being uh, oppressed by, by sin or by temptation or by difficulties in life, or maybe we're just spending our life wandering around confused. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. And we feel like we're stuck in the wilderness. Let me encourage you that God is a God who is with his people even in the wilderness. God fights for those who, who are opposed. God supplies for those who are empty. And God directs those who wander and are lost. So if you find yourself in any of those places, you're not far from the presence of God. You're actually close to the presence of God. God wants to extend his, his hand with his, or his arm with his mighty hand to fight for you, to protect you, provide for you, and direct you.